Shalom, and welcome to In the Beginning. My name is Shmuel Bowman, and I am a Torah scribe. I am in conversation today with Hannah Stainen. Hannah, you're in Lethbridge, Alberta, and uh, but I can also tell, we can tell from Pardon me saying you you have an accent, which means that it doesn't sound like a it doesn't sound like somebody from Lethbridge. I am so excited to hear your story. I'm so excited to hear uh, all sorts of things. And I want to have a free flowing conversation with you today about number numerous subjects, including where you hail from originally. And we'll go from there. So please, Hannah, welcome to in the beginning. And uh, please introduce yourself. I go by the name Hannah Steinen in Canada. But when I was born, my names were Hanneke Rijpstra. And where, where were you born? My parents are from Friesland. I'm a Friesian girl. But I was born in Zandijk, the province of North Holland. That would be in, in the Netherlands, probably. Country, the Netherlands, yes. Province, North Holland. It's about uh, 10, 12 kilometers northwest of Amsterdam. Okay. And during the time when you were when you were born, when you were growing up in in the Netherlands, what was what was happening there? Um I was born in 1942. So the war had started already. Okay. And I just want to be just just so I'm clear, are you can you tell us are you are you coming from a a uh, Jewish or a Christian family? Atheist family. Atheist family. Okay. How would when today today yeah. I'm a, I'm a Christian, but my parents were not. Okay. Your parents. So your parents are adults. They're their mother and father. To you, do you have any? Uh, did you have any older siblings who were? No, I don't. No. Okay. Okay. I'm the oldest. You're the oldest. I so <laughs> I have a sister and she was born in 1947. Okay. So she's born after the war. You're born in 1942. Did you ever ask your parents what it was like to have a child, have a have a have a have a child and raise a young child in the middle of World War II? Uh in what I'm assuming is that at that point in time is Nazi occupied. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, Netherlands. No, at that time, children never asked their parents. That was just wasn't done. When I serious seriously was thinking of applying on behalf of my parents for the title of righteous among the nations, I I always knew. I cannot tell you why. But I knew there was information about my father in the Dutch war archive. So I uh, emailed them for a copy. So I got a copy. And it is 15 pages. And that gives me a little glimpse of what was happening, mm -hmm. what our family was involved in. Mother so never they, talked about it. They rarely. So they didn't, actually, was, they didn't actually come out and say, hey, Hannah, sit down. We want to tell you. What our what what we did during during the war that kind of open candid conversation was not happening. 
My parents were early on involved with a group of teachers, I understand, uh, in the resistance movement. And when I was about 16, my father and I, we went on a little tour. It was our first car, just the two of us. And we went closer also to places closer to the German border. And I could tell by the greetings, my father knew those people well. They knew each other. But I still didn't ask any questions. And if those couples had kids in their house, a bit older than me, all of us were excused from the living room. And we all knew they were talking about wartime. But also as a kid, when there was company after the war, uh, I would quite often crawl down the staircase halfway and try to pick up what was so important they were talking about so there are some that's how my, i got my information so that that's very interesting because it sounds like you had to really do some digging it wasn't just i did a lot of digging wow, wow, wow it was wow. amazing that journey from 2013 to 2019 when the ceremony for my parents took place in toronto if i was stuck in a time slot and didn't know there was always appearing newspaper articles books i didn't read to get a sense of political background or what life was like. So I could pick up the taste and the flavor of that particular decade or time slot. Of course, the war took place right out, uh, past uh, after the, the dirty 30s with high unemployment. So my father was a new teacher and he couldn't find a job in his home province. So that's why we ended up in Sandaik. Now, so it was a network of people. It is not that my parents saved 25 lives. It was in cooperation with other people. Okay, but I do want to come back to that point. But before I come back to the point about what you know, what you learned that your parents did regarding the lives that they saved. Today's today's date, as we are recording this today, today's date is the 10th of May, May the 10th. And you wrote to me in an email that that date is engraved in your memory. What happened on May the 10th, 83 years ago? The Germans just waltzed and then just moved over and took uh, took the Netherlands as their own country. They invaded a a sovereign state and took over and the Dutch government and the Dutch royal house already escaped to London. So the country was wide open. There's no guidance, no nothing, no army, nothing. There was no military draft. And it was at the end of the dirty 30s. But no leadership. And they just, so that that's what happened 83 years ago today. That's incredible. That's yes. incredible that here yeah, we are having this conversation. So let's go yeah. back to, let's go back to now your parents. And what exactly did you discover that you felt, as you say, part of a network? It wasn't only them. I understand that. But we are talking about your parents, your mom and dad. What did you discover? that they did uh, regarding lives that were protected and saved? Well, my father was involved in the resistance, you know, Mm -hmm. destroying things, that type of stuff. (laughs) That's cool. That's cool. He also wrote uh, that he had blood on his hands in his handwriting. So that's all I can say about that. I don't know if that was in the beginning of the war or... Up till him, there was a traitor involved, of course. 
always a traitor. Mm-hmm. And they, tra- mm-hmm. they found out he had military training. And as far as I could piece that together, there are no army bases in Friesland or on the Frisian islands. So to me, that means it was army training in the resistance. Got it, got it. And when he was picked up, uh, they stopped the train into Belgium, and he was the only person taken off that train. So he was questioned in Brussels and then Den Haag or The Hague in English. And then he was put in Oranje Hotel, translated the Orange Hotel. That was an abandoned prison, not fit for any human living. And the Nazis opened that up again. There was no sewer, no running water, nothing. And so he denied having army training, but he did. So he was interrogated. And the the people of the Netherlands, the Dutch people, had that name of honor, Orange Hotel, because that is the color of the Dutch royal house. Mm, it was mm-hmm. a folk name, and that was not, it was a terrible place to be. People uh, in the resistance, Jewish people, children, Jehovah Witnesses, homosexuals, I didn't, not one section of the population, and dead bodies every morning, and my father was put in solitary for nine months, but Whoa. did not talk or give up any names. I mean, I have to say that I'm kind of amazed that he even survived. How do you, I don't know how that happens. I mean, that he actually... He was sent, finally, he was sent. There is a lot more stuff in between, but he was finally sent two, three, four... POW camps, Eastern Germany, close to the Polish border. And that album I gave you, look at the last page. You can Those are the back of photos. Mother sent care packages and photos of me. So then you see their handwriting, um, the date it was sent or the date father received it. He didn't receive 40 care packages, okay? Just right. a few, maybe four or five. And those photos... Uh, survived. I have a tiny, tiny little album here. Mother made herself. I don't know if you can see it. Uh bring it closer. Bring it. This is gonna be this is gonna be audio, but uh let's take a look at that. Okay, now I can see that. Yeah. They lift it up higher. Mother mother made this and she sent the top and it indeed arrived. So he had this in a possession and after the war, me as a little girl, there's all focus about me. Yeah. So I had it kind of restored, put a few flowers in. Mm. So this is one of the treasures went all the way through the Polish border and it came back. Amazing, amazing, yeah. amazing. Tell me about the tell me about Yad Vashem and the honor bestowed upon your parents. See the not everybody stayed in the Netherlands, but the, the Jewish people hid in our house uh we kept in touch with for years. And some went to Israel, or when it was the British mandate, still Palestine, or went to the States, a lot of them left. Mm-hmm. I have, in the 80s, was a, a Dutch radio show, I think, on Saturday morning, and there was a, a bit of information. I remember pulling over and stopping my car and made some notes about Yad Vashem. Not completely, I still have the piece of paper. And it was not until my husband died of cancer in July 2013, that winter, I was going to take a course uh, to help dealing with his death. But because our slate was clean, we made sure there was no unfinished anything. Our slate was clean. There was nothing to add I couldn't do the morning part on him because I was past that point. But my parents' images kept popping up. And I finally said to God, I get it. You got my attention. I will will pick it up from here. 
And that was the starting point of getting information and getting in touch with Yad Vashem in, uh, in Jerusalem uh, about the forums and what to think about. Um, my intake person, as I call it, was a Dutch, a Dutch young woman. I guess, because my documents were in Dutch. So that is, uh, I think that she was assigned to me and her English is good, of course. Yeah. So does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. It was, did you, a, did you, it sorry, was a journey of three years before I had exhausted all information. There was one elderly man still living. He was 16 in 1942, and against his parents' wishes, they were Orthodox Jewish family and, and elderly parents. And he was in our house when he was 16, and I was a three-month-old baby girl. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning and later in his life, we kept in touch. And he was willing to be a witness. And I said, don't bother him. The man is in his late 80s. You said, let him be. But he was willing to do so to be a witness on behalf of my parents. And I remember him visiting a couple of times after the war too. Amazing, amazing. Did you wind, did you come to Israel? Last November, yes, I did. Oh, the trip, what a trip that was. (laughs) I wanted to go for 62 years, you know. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, and on COVID, oh, postponed it twice. (laughs) <laughs> so finally, last November, I went. Yes. What did you think so, when you got to when you got to Israel? What were what were your impressions after having thinking about it and planning and dreaming and praying about it? When you got to Israel, what were your first impressions? All the houses were white, and it is a Mediterranean country. We already had snow. I left in a major blizzard, and then you come there, <laughs> and you can just wear summer clothes and the friendly people. I came a couple of days earlier, so I explored uh, the area of Ramat Gan, part of Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it hit me a little bohemian with all little shops, artsy-fartsy style, <laughs> and I felt really at home and sitting outside and eating in November. <laughs> yeah. You, how about Jerusalem? When you went up when you went up to Jerusalem, what did you think about it? Jerusalem. Well, that was a treat. It is the center of the universe. Wow. Is it? Yeah. For you, for me also. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Especially the old city. Mm. And uh, Hezekiah's tunnel. Yeah. All the old history. We had a wonderful tour guide. And there was a part that was not open to the public yet, but I guess the tour guides knew it so well. So we had a choice. Shall we go ahead or get wet, ankle deep in mud? So we all went ahead. It was just such a treat to be there, uh, maybe the first group of tourists, you know? Wow. Wow. It's amazing. I sometimes, you know, I I never tire of Jerusalem. I've I've been living here for 30 years. We made Aliyah. We moved to Israel 30 years ago. I'm always finding something new, and you know, I can't, it, it, I can't help think that we're literally uh, living the words of the prophets. That yes. what the prophets had said would happen 2,500 years ago. More, uh, you want to, you want to see it come alive. Hang out and have a cup of coffee in the old city of Jerusalem, yes. or you know, 
Yeah, we did. We had lunch there, and yeah, <laughs> it kind of flowed. It was not a day what was really tightly planned. It just flowed. It was nice. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Yeah, I need uh, to go back. Yeah, I do definitely need to come back. Let me ask you this. You've been to Israel now. Israel is in your heart. Tell me what your thoughts are about Israel in the world, uh, either in terms of how the world understands Israel, the challenges that Israel has as part of the um, community of nations. Uh, how do you, how do you, what's your sense about Israel's special place in the world? God said it is. God gave that piece of land to Abraham and his offspring. Mm-hmm. And yet, and yet, so many nations in the world uh, don't really get that, do they? They don't really no. understand. No, they don't. No, they don't. And I find uh, what we get here on Canadian news, they hardly, <laughs> hardly mention anything honest. It's all from the from the Arab point of view. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. History is not taught much here, neither in the States and I learn in Netherlands. It is kind of not so important. I don't know if it is because of COVID. People just don't know or don't care. So it doesn't matter wherever I am and I need to tell them the truth. Right, right, right. So that place of truth, that place of telling the truth, I mean, at the end of, ultimately, it's coming from a place of of faith, or yes. you know, or what we say in Hebrew, we call it emuna, emuna, a place of faith, because uh, you know, you can have all these. There can be all sorts of uh, discussions and arguments. Does Israel have a right to exist? Does Israel have a right to you know, to be where it is, and so on and so forth. Uh, and we can, I think we can argue all the facts and statistics that we like, but ultimately it's, we know because, because of our faith. Can you share with me a little bit about your faith? You said that you came from an atheist family, but you're a Christian. Yes. yes. How do you, how do you explain that? <laughs> okay. I was, I went on this tour and I was the only non-Jewish person. I think most of them were Orthodox Jewish. So it was Shabbat. And it was a long, leisurely lunch. And there came a question. You tell uh, you told us your, your parents weren't believers, but you claimed to be a Christian. Well, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. So I look at the American tour guide because this came up during a phone conversation. If I could come along with them, I was not curious or recording or arguing about nothing. I wanted to come along with Jewish people and listen and learn. So I look at the American tour guide and said, this subject is off, not on the table. This, this is, <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't start preaching. The questions came to me. And so she said, go ahead. <laughs> so I shared, uh, I always knew there was a God. There was an empty spot in my heart and soul, even as a little girl of six or seven. So I went to explore. I was going to find God in some of the church buildings. But just past my birthday, summer holiday, I had a brand new bicycle. 
So I went to some churches and visit, and I didn't find them there. I saw neighbors go to their choice of church, and I, yeah, I went to one church, and uh, the front doors were still locked, but I found a little side door. It's a spiral staircase going up, and I ended up on the balcony. And I thought, well, that looks pretty beautiful, wooden interior. And I thought, ah, wait, I'm only seven, you know. I didn't realize the organist was there. <laughs> I had I had no idea about the pipe organ. I never seen one or heard one. So the organist, I guess that's what his title was, started all of a sudden practicing. <laughs> you know what that's... And I was sitting right beside, touching the encasing. So the sounds, the booming sound and the vibration and the pure... So I ran out, I tumbled out. So I tried two more times different churches and I never found them there. It was mm. not until the age of 29 when I made a decision to... Like a leap of faith. Yeah. If I give my life to God... And there is no footing. If I step forward and there is like a, a ravine. So that was a matter of trust that he would be there when I step out. Yeah. And step in faith out of my comfort zone. Yes. So and from that point on, yes. I'm actually uh, right now on my own reading all the songs. Mm. All, mm. Yeah. Which is your favorite song? Or let I'm me, not that let me, let me rephrase it. Which, which, is, which, which psalm really, they, I mean, all the psalms are so powerful, but is there anyone in particular that really resonates? When I, when I pick up on the word, my salvation, my redeemer, and the faith David had and always trusted God again and again. Yeah. For whatever happens. That is an example of Always coming back, trusting, having faith in you right. call Hashem, right? Right. But never mind what happens around me or in the town or with family. I, I when things seem impossible, I always say quite often loud out, "There is a God, and He's still in control." Yes, yes. And we and have that in common. Yes, and the words I of did start pre on that Saturday, I didn't start preaching. I answered a lot of questions. <laughs> How come your day of rest is not on Saturday, but on Sunday? So, well, I agree, it should be on Saturday. <laughs> Things like that, you know. <laughs> That's great. Uh, going to the Psalms for a moment, you know, when you when you're when you were talking about that, it makes me think. One of my favorite, they're all wonderful, but one of the Psalms that. I always turn back to is Esa Enai Elaharim Me'ayin Yavo Ezri Ezri Metadonai Vasishamayim Va'aretz. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Yeah. Where does from where does my help come? It comes from God, yeah. the Creator of heaven and earth. And yeah. when I kind of continue to return to that psalm. It reminds me that you know there's so much um, there's so much uh, anti-truth, non-truth out there in the world, and yes. you know a lot of people who claim to 
think that they know the truth. And sometimes you ever notice that people who claim to know the truth, they talk louder. They're always talking so loud and they're talking so passionately. You think, oh, they must, they must really know the truth because they're talking so loud and with such strength. And, uh, I have a feeling that there's a, uh, there's a kind of a, you know, the louder people talk <laughs> and the more passionate they are, it makes me think that more, it's more and more and more of a non-truth. And so by yes. lifting my eyes up to the mountain and knowing where does my help come, I, that, that for me, that's it. In other words, I look, when I lift up my eyes, what am I doing? I'm looking past, I'm looking beyond, I'm looking over all the, um, all the, uh, you know, what's it called in Hebrew, Hevel, of the, um, I forgot the word in English now. Anyways, all the, all the, all the, all the, all the, uh, all the trivial, all the false things, all the silly things. So yeah. many people talk about nothing, just right. filling space and time. Right, yeah. right, right, right. I, I also learned how important to Vanity, vanities. Va the word is vanities, by the way. The word I was looking for yeah. is van vanities. Yeah, vanities. Yeah. yeah. Vanity, vanity, all but vanity. Yes. Um. So when we talk about your family, to what point has your faith impacted your family? your children, your grandchildren, do they know about your faith? Yeah, they do. They were all raised in an evangelical church. Yeah. The youngest wasn't even born yet, so they were small when we started attending a church. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And what are your children, what are your children and the grandchildren doing these days? They're adults. They make their own choices. Am I pleased or comfortable with the nomination they attended? That is none of my business. Um, it was hard for my husband and I to learn that. So I don't think I should mention any denomination or uh, criticize is their personal choice and if they're happy that is then their walk with the Lord not mine yeah you have your grandson was in the uh, Canadian army I also have a granddaughter now in the Canadian army <laughs> that's a, how do you feel Our about forces. that <laughs> he is a medical technician mm -hmm. uh, to become a nurse in the army Great. Uh, my 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 choice to come to Canada was uh, one of the major things because there was no uh, a military draft like there uh, was after the war in the Netherlands and other European countries. Mm -hmm. No military draft, volunteers. And now I have two grandchildren, voluntary going <laughs> into the army. How so ironic! Just coming full coming full circle. I admire, I admire them, and uh, the partner of one of them is also in the army. So now, technically, have three young adults in the Canadian Armed Forces. That's amazing. Well, they are, and uh, I, I'm proud of them. I'm yeah. proud of them. Yeah. 
Very much no, it's, so. it's it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a statement and an and an action that has to do with serving. And we live in a, a world where everybody is taking and taking and taking and taking, and here they are giving and giving and giving and giving. And it's yes. uh, it's exemplary. It's absolutely exemplary. I've always said to my husband, too, I think the Dutch army made a man out of you, the man you were destined to be, to be disciplined. He comes from concentration camps in the former Netherlands East Indies. Also born in 1942. So that was three and a half years and four camps there and two refugee camps. So there was no discipline, well, of a different kind, not healthy discipline. Right. So he didn't do well in the school system. We visited a, a school in, in Israel that was for troubled boys either learning a disability or living on the street, a broken family. So they have a very disciplined life, one-to-one teachers uh, in a yeshiva. They do a lot of hiking and outdoorsy stuff. And I thought, I said loud out, that would have been a perfect school for my husband if he was a young kid back then. So I think the discipline and that sense of working together, and I think it was good for him. Yeah. yeah. And he agrees. Hannah, kind of wrapping up our conversation, what what message do you have for others who are listening here today um, in terms of understanding, you know, I guess your life, uh, understanding um, your relationship with God and with Israel? How what what message would you want to? What messages do you sh- would you want to share with others? Well, because of all the Jewish people that found refuge in our home, Israel always has been in my heart. At the age of 18, I was planning to go there and work for a while. It didn't work out. Our, our parents divorced and just out of high school. And so I ended up becoming a social worker and um, art therapist. And I worked in an Orthodox Jewish mental facility centrally located in the Netherlands. And most of the patients were Holocaust survivors. Mm. They were survivors in no shape to be able to take care of themselves. And there were also patients with regular, I call them regular mental illnesses like deep depression or schizophrenia or, yeah, and they came um, all from all over when they were Sinai Clinic, Sinai Clinic it was called. But we also had patients coming from Israel and New York State, I guess, because of their total different outlook on mental illnesses. And, of course, the dietary uh, laws were implemented. Uh, I don't think there was a facility like that anywhere else in the world at that well, point in time. Right. Yeah. Right. Do you, you know, my uh, in my father's handwriting, he referred to, to the Dutch Jewish people 
um, translated in English as fellow citizens. Okay. And that hit the tour I went with. Mm -hmm. And also when I spoke in Ottawa, there was a, a moderator and uh, that's just people. They're just people. Yes, yes. <laughs> when you happen to live in the same country, the fellow citizens. So my parents went into protest and saved 25 lives and 22 were Jewish. Amazing. You know, I think the rabbis teach us right, when you save one life, it's as if you save an entire uh, world. So yeah. 25 worlds. Same. There was a man that we were we had we had supper in a private home and there was political talk. Now there was some in English, some in Hebrew, so I didn't go in the living room, I stayed at the dining room table, just from a distance kind of listening. And a friend of the host came a bit later and then he sat beside me and he asked me, um, is that true that your parents saved 25 lives, 22 Jewish lives? I said, well, not on their own. There was a group, a small group of resistance fighters together. And I said, yes, that is so. And he said, do you know that that amounts to a thousand people today? Mm. I don't know what the calculation was, but imagine parents of seeing all those people together like an open space outside that would be unbelievable oh oh, oh wow yeah. Hannah. wow we wow yeah. what a what a that's a powerful powerful word that's a powerful message very true very true all the, they, the, they the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren now of all these people yeah it probably it's like a thousand people wow I don't know what how what the calculation is, but uh, I assume he would say so if he wouldn't be sure of the number, the number of people. Amazing. He just did it not out of religious motivation, out of sheer human human beings, humanitarian reasons. Yeah, yeah. There were two occasions when it was very close that we would have been discovered and God knows what would have happened after. Hmm. As a little girl, I remember the Nazi boots walking in. What do you, what do you, remember, what do you remember about them? They kicked the living room open. The, the, all the rooms had doors because there was not central heating in that house. I remember, and he walked in and he walked upstairs. And I was wondering, where is everybody? I remember thinking that. I was maybe a year and a half to 20 months tops. Wow. I remember the weather. I remember what I wore. And wow. I remember thinking, look straight ahead. What wisdom. That young, if my eyes would have looked in the direction where the people went, oh my God. I went later across the back alley to another safe place. And 40 years after the war, I met somebody who lived across the back alley. I have a photo, me in the playpen, and him and his younger brother and sister. 
all in my wooden playpen. He's about three to four years older. And I met him in church in Shemenes on Vancouver Island. He was a, a Greyhound bus driver. So he mm-hmm. just popped in with his daughter. And uh, the, in the summer, uh, sometimes the barbecues would be lit first Sunday of the month. Uh, potluck, there was a playground. Uh, just relax instead of go home, you know. So he sat at my table. And, of course, uh, he introduced I must have mentioned my, my, my chosen name. I chose a Jewish name for my first name, Hannah. And uh, he sat at my table, and of course he spoke the same way I did. And he he uh, said, "What town were you born? Where were you born?" I said, "Sandek," and he said, "Me too." Hmm. And what I've never ever done before, I mentioned the name of the street and the house number. My door lot twee, number two, the end of row houses. And he said, "You're Hanneke Rijpstra." Oh my wow. He said, yes. Wow. He said, and your parents were teachers. And they their names are Bart and Witzke Rijpstra. Yeah. And they had all those Jews hidden in the house. And I was <laughs> I literally curled up in a ball in that lawn chair. And wow. I hear him repeat, Hanneke, the war is over. The war is over. And by the time I sat up straight again. I said, is that that war, is it over for anybody still living from that era? Is the war really over? Why do you think I'm in Canada for the other reason? I need to get away from the Germans. I couldn't live there anymore. And when the German wall was so-called being, uh, they were hacking it to pieces, I was sitting in my sister's living room in the Netherlands. The news at that time was eight in the evening. Mm-hmm. And at some point she looked at me. She said, "What? what is wrong with you? And I, uh, she said, you're in a full-blown uh, panic attack. Yeah. I said, yes, I cannot live here anymore. Wow, 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 wow. So is is the war over for me? Was it over for my parents? Right, right. Not really. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hannah, so this is, yeah. How close that, oh, and then he said, but the whole neighborhood knew. And, of course, the row houses have bedrooms upstairs. So from three sides, everybody looked in each other's yard. As careful as everybody must have been, even him as a kid knew. Isn't that amazing? And then I remember sitting and looking at him that it is by the grace of God and the grace of our neighbors, including the younger ones, that they kept their mouth shut. Yeah. So two times we were really close. I, I have no words. And this no was words. this was normal. People look. What I learned uh, at the ceremony in Toronto or the people I met in Ottawa or also the people I traveled with last November, they look at my parents as heroes. They were just parents. They were just people who stepped up for the right course at the right time. Yeah. This was normal in my life. That was not extraordinary until I stood facing the wall of honor at Yad Vashem. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. That was very powerful, and I could, from that point, I felt, and I can say, yes, they're my heroes, too. Yeah, yeah. Wow, 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 wow. to stand there and look around a beautiful place and looking at the houses there across the valley, Mm. 
I felt that was like perhaps the spiritual home. They were in the right place, the right place to be memorized. They will because the names are engraved there. And there is, I don't think there are memories in the Netherlands anymore. I have one sister and a cousin and all their contemporary people, their age, they're all gone. My parents died in the 80s, just like the other people in the resistance or neighbors or colleagues, or they're all gone. Nobody remembers them. But at Yad Vashem, they are remembered. And that was my, my goal to start applying took six years, from 2013 to 2019. <laughs> that was the ceremony, and uh, 2016, the names were added to the wall, laser engraved. Yeah, that was very overwhelming being there. Next time I, next time I go to Yad Vashem, I will go over there, and I will, I will see your parents' names. Yeah, you I, look up I, the Netherlands. Yeah. I'll, I'll look at them. I'll look at that. And, 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 you know, now that we've heard, now that I've heard their story, looking at their names is going to take on even more and deeper meaning because yes. of you and because of the story and bringing their story to life. Hannah, thank you very, very much. We're going to, we're going to, we could go on forever, uh, but we're going to bring it to a close at this point. I just want to thank you very, very much for everything you've shared with us. Well, I can talk a lot longer, minimum an hour, you know, this is your first, you know what? <laughs> We, I think we yeah. could even go. I think we could go longer than that. So we'll pick it up yeah. again at another time. Yeah. So thank you very, very much, Hannah. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. So much. Thank you for thank you for being with us today. Please join me every week for new ideas, and uh, let's share these secrets together. Shalom, I'm Shmuel Bowman. In the Beginning is produced by Sacred Scrolls. You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, or Amazon Music. If you have any questions or comments, please be in touch through our website at sacredscrolls.net. Thank you for listening.